Well, this morning, I just want to mention a couple things as we kind of get started. One, last week we mentioned this 45-day prayer challenge, and um, some of you have taken me up on that and have started doing that. And so if you weren't here last week, uh, the quick summary is this, that we we think prayer really does change things, and we think prayer radically changes our lives, and we, in fact, think God wants us to pray for us to be used by Him uh, in really good ways. And so um, the the challenge was to pray 45 days every single day. and if you did that and God didn't answer your prayer, then Joe Porter would give you $500. Um, but if God answers your prayer, um, then you owe him money. So that's how this deal works. So, um, but no, really, we believe God wants to use us all in that. So the challenge was to pray 45 days every day. And if you didn't do that, if you hadn't started that yet, um, you can do it today. And so there's even some cards, cards back there, and mine's hanging on my bathroom mirror. I taped it to the mirror in the bathroom, so I see it every morning. And uh, I just want to challenge you to think about the ways God may want to use you and to be stretched in that way. And so if you start today, 45 days is May 16th is when you'd finish. So my challenge, if you didn't start last week, that you would start today and pray every single day for one thing, for God to use you in some incredible way. And we told a story about a guy from, from California who prayed for the country of Uganda and in fact literally changed their country and eventually was... Um, an advisor to their president, and just kind of an incredible story, and I'm glad to tell you after the service. So there's that. Then I want to mention there's kids' food basket, and so over 100 of us colored bags last week. I think we colored just under 500 bags to give to kids who, who don't have enough food, and so one of the way kids' food basket exists in West Michigan to help families in need, and, and so they send meals home with kids, and so what happened last week, we decorated all those bags, and then some of us went Thursday and filled those bags, and so we packed 755 meals in 45 minutes. It's kind of incredible. In fact, I was so slow, one lady took one of my jobs and left me with just one because she didn't think I could multitask, so she did it for me. Um, But what's kind of cool in that is that in West Michigan, they pack 7,500 bags per day. So during the school year, in Muskegon County, they'll pack 135,900 meals. In West Michigan, it's 1.35 million for kids who need food. And so you are a part of that. And so if you, if you brought stuff and gave to that, I think that's great. But in fact, I, was, I asked the lady as we were there, I said, now, I thought I knew the answer, and, and unfortunately I was right. But I said, so what's more beneficial for us to just give you guys food and stuff, or is it to donate money? And she kind of looked at me sheepishly because no one likes to answer that question. I said, I'm going to guess it's if we donate money because you get the food much cheaper than we do. She goes, yeah, actually, absolutely. We can pack a bag for a dollar. You can't. Um, so if you want to give the kids food basket, I would encourage you to give food and, and stuff. And there's a list for that at the, at the children's check-in and at the connection corner. But also, uh, you can go online and just type in kids food basket. Or you can make a donation, which would be greatly benefit, beneficial because one dollar feeds one kid one meal. Um, so you heard the numbers, and they need that. In fact, they're not in every school they want to be. They're hoping to be in more before the year is up. Uh, and then finally, one last announcement. Um, Easter Sunday, every year we baptize people. And if you have never been baptized, I, I would challenge you to be baptized this, this Easter Sunday. And if you're like, oh, I don't know if I need to be baptized, I'm, I'm good. And I'll say this, if you are a follower of Jesus, if you've committed your life to him, and you've never been baptized, then this is the time. Um, 
signifies this idea that who I have been is not who I want to be, and I want to be something new and different and better than I have ever been. And that through Jesus, I think that's possible. And so I would encourage you to think about on Easter Sunday being baptized. If you're interested in that, please contact me, and we can, we can make that happen. But, but that's, that's kind of all the announcement stuff I had I just wanted to share with you this morning. But, but have you ever felt like you had really good intentions in some area of life? Like there was something you wanted to accomplish, and you were just, you were going to get it done. And then you started, and then you did something else instead. You were going to do this, and then that happened instead. And, and truthfully, I mean, here's an example. Maybe, maybe you went to your boss, and you and a coworker decided, you know, we really need raises because we just haven't gotten raises in a while, and it's time to talk to our boss. And so the two of you developed this plan. You're going to each go talk separately to your boss and ask that you would both get raises. Say, not just for me, but I think, you know, they really could use one as well. And that's, that's not an uncommon thing. And, and so you went, and, and then when you were in the boss's office, you know, he or she said to you, you know, um, you're doing a really good job, and in fact, we're going to give you a raise, but we're not giving anyone else a raise, so I kind of need you not to share this with anyone, um, because, because we're not giving others a raise, but you've earned it. So in your head, you're going, what coworker? Um, I didn't have a plan, and you just leave the office, and you, your coworker says, how'd that go? And you go, oh, you know, I, I don't know. I don't know if they're going to give raises. You know, you just walk away because you had this plan, but it worked out for you, so you keep your mouth shut, right? You had good intentions, but not necessarily the right action. See, I think we all live this way. We have good intentions, but our good intentions don't always result in right actions. I mean, sometimes we have wrong intention, intentions, and those usually definitely lead to wrong actions. But, but here's what I mean. When I was in college, um, we, growing up, my, my dad played a lot of basketball, and so did I. And so we would play in this tournament every year, or he played every year, and I'd go watch. And then when I was late in high school and in college, I got to play with him. And so the last year of the tournament was like my freshman year of college. And, and 32 teams played, and it was over two days, and you'd play like six games on the Saturday. It was, it was a lot. So we get there, and, and I've decided, you know, I'm in college, and I'm, I'm starting to be the pastor. I thought, well, you know, I'm going to try to try to win the sportsmanship award, because that's a good award, right? That's, that's worthy of, so I'll try to be a good sport. So the first game, I was, you know, extra nice to guys on the other team, and then the second game started, and, and we were winning, and then they started playing kind of dirty, and, and that sportsmanship idea kind of went right out the window, and so I was pushing back, and there might have been some trash talk, and, and so I'm pretty sure I'm not, wasn't some of my proudest moments that game. I didn't win the sportsmanship award, by the way. Um, I probably lost it in that game right there. Or I could tell you about when I was in high school, and, and my, you know, I, my dad and I had long conversations growing up about how honesty was so important. And how he wanted me to tell him the truth. He said, listen, you will never be in more trouble with me than if you lie to me. Because you, you break my trust. And I, and I don't know whether to believe you or not. And so then when we have just any conversation, it's hard to know if you're telling me the truth. And so there was this incident where I knew he didn't know what happened. I knew there was no way he could know what happened. And I, and I knew that um, if I lied to him, he couldn't prove me wrong. And so I lied to him about something. And, and um, he looked at me and goes, I think you're lying to me. I'm a really bad liar, so that's probably why he probably knew. I said, no, no, I'm not lying to you. He goes, I'm, I'm pretty sure you're lying to me. I said, Dad, I'm not lying to you. So I stuck to my story because he couldn't prove me wrong. I knew it. So, so fast forward about three or four years later, I was in college, and there was a speaker talking about this idea of still confessing things and, and asking for forgiveness from stuff that happened years before. And, and this was like a weight on my shoulders, and I didn't want to talk to my dad. And so I went home the next break, and, and I walked in. I said, hey, got a minute. He goes, yeah, what, what's going on? I said, I, um, I need to apologize to you. He said, I, I know we talked about not, not lying, and now that's, that's good, right? But I, I, um, I lied to you about something a while back, and I just want to tell you the truth. 
And I told him when, and he goes, yeah, I, I knew you were lying to me. I said, yeah, I kind of figured you did. And I goes, well, I forgive you. And we moved on. See, I think for all of us, we have moments in life where we can have all the right intentions, but if we do the wrong thing, then our intentions are worthless, right? And we can have all the wrong intentions and do the wrong thing, but that really is kind of what we were intending, so I don't know about that one. But, but often, it's really hard to have right intention and right action. But what happens, we ask this question, after we have right intention and wrong action, we kind of all ask this same question, what now? What now? What do I do now? Do I go ask for forgiveness? Do I pretend like it didn't happen? Do I move on? What, what now? And we're all left answering the same question after we've had right intention, wrong action, what now? And this really is kind of where we find ourselves in Luke chapter 22. It's the story that Jesus' disciples find themselves in. And so we're going to look at three different characters in the story. I mean, it's, a, it's, a, it's kind of a long text, so I won't make you stand as we read today. But, but Luke writes this biography of Jesus, and we're in this kind of towards the end of Jesus' life on earth. And, and it's this section of Scripture where, where he tells lots of things happening. We're going to look at about 65 verses today. But, but we're going to kind of do like the 10,000-foot view. We're going to kind of look over it instead of like look at every single story. And so I'll, I'll read it, and I'll kind of give you a summary of the whole thing, and then we'll, we'll talk about it. But, but one of the things that we see in this is there are three kind of main characters. There's Jesus. Shocking. It's, it's a biography. It's about him. There's Judas, and there's Peter. When we look at each of them, and each of them have this moment where they have to kind of decide, what now? Am I going to follow right, right intention with right action? Do I even have the right intention? Or am I going to have the right intention and have the wrong action? And so that's kind of what we're going to look at this morning. So we're going to be in Luke chapter 22, and if you want, you can stay seated uh, as I read this, because it's really long, and uh, you'd have to stand for a long time. So Luke 22 verse 1 says this, now the feast of the unleavened bread called the Passover was approaching, and the chief priests and the teachers of the law were looking for some way to get rid of Jesus, for they were afraid of the people. Then Satan entered Judas, called Iscariot, one of the twelve, and Judas went to the chief priests and the officers of the temple guard and discussed with them how he might betray Jesus. They were delighted and agreed to give him money. He consented and watched for an opportunity to hand Jesus over to them when no crowd was present. Then came the day of the unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. Where do you want us to prepare for it? They asked. He replied, As you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him to the house that he enters, and say to the owner of the house, The teacher asked, Where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large upper room, all furnished. Make preparations there. They left and found things just as Jesus had told them, so they prepared the Passover. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table, and he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. But the hand of him who is going to betray me is with mine on the table. The Son of Man will go as it has been decreed, but woe to that man who betrays him. They began to question among themselves which of them it might be who would do this. Also dispute arose among them as to which of them was considered to be the greatest. Jesus said to them, 
The kings of the Gentiles lorded over them, and those who exercised authority over them called themselves benefactors. But you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest. Among the greatest among you should be like the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. You are those who have stood by me in my trials. And I confer on you a kingdom just as my Father conferred one on me, so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail, and when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. But he replied, Lord, I'm ready to go with you to prison and to death. Jesus answered, I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows today, you will deny three times that you know me. And Jesus asked them, When I sent you without purse, bag, or sandals, did you lack nothing? Nothing, they answered. He said to them, But now, if you have a purse, take it, and also a bag, and if you don't, have a sword, sell your cloak, and buy one. It is written, And he was numbered with the transgressors. And I tell you that this must be fulfilled in me. Yes, what is written about me is reaching its fulfillment. The disciples said, See, Lord, here are two swords. That's enough, he replied. Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives, and his disciples followed him. On reaching the place, he said to them, Pray that you will not fall into temptation. He withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, knelt down, and prayed, Father, if you're willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. When he rose from prayer and went back to his disciples, he found them asleep, exhausted from sorrow. Why are you sleeping? He asked them. Get up and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. While he was still speaking, a crowd came up, and the man who was called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He approached Jesus to kiss him, but Jesus asked him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? When Jesus' followers saw what was going to happen, they said, Lord, should we strike with our swords? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his right ear. But Jesus answered, No more of this. They touched the man's ear and healed him. And Jesus said to the chief priests, the officers of the temple guard, and the elders who had come to him, Am I leading a rebellion that you have come with swords and clubs? Every day I was with you in the temple courts, and you did not lay a hand on me. But this is your hour when darkness reigns. And seizing him, they led him away and took him into the house of the high priest. Peter followed at a distance, but when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and had sat down together, Peter sat down with them. A servant girl saw him seated there in the firelight. She looked closely at him and said, This man was with him. But he denied it. Woman, I don't know him, he said. A little later, someone else saw him and said, You also are one of them. Man, I am not, Peter replied. But an hour later, another asserted, Certainly this fellow was with him, for he is a Galilean. Peter replied, Man, I don't know what you're talking about. Just as he was speaking, the rooster crowed, the Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. Then Peter remembered the word the Lord had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows today, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. The men who were guarding Jesus began mocking and beating him. They blindfolded him and demanded, Prophesy, who hits you? And they said many other insulting things to him. The word of the Lord. I told you that was really, really long. And some of you may need to wake up now. And you may need to read it again later. But I'm going to try to summarize portions of it for you. So it begins with this picture of Judas betraying Jesus. And Judas was called a scared, or Judas was a zealot. And a zealot was someone who was, who is what the name implies, zealous. 
They were a little bit over the top. And so Judas, Judas had bought into this idea that for the Messiah, for the Savior of God's people to come, that they had to, they had to go to war. And war was the only way that this was going to be brought about. And so, so in many ways, he's trying to usher, because if his belief was Jesus was this man, then he wants to usher Jesus to kind of hurry up to action. Or it really could be, as the Scripture says, that, that Satan entered him. But what it means is this, that Judas had a choice. He could live in such a way that he tried to follow after God, or he could decide in these moments that he could live how he wanted to live. And so what we see here is he made a decision that benefited him and really no one else. And then we see the next part of the story. Jesus has made arrangements, and he sends his disciples on ahead, and he says, hey, there's going to be this guy carrying water. And you're like, how in the world, because Jerusalem would have been about over a million people during Passover time, how in the world are we going to find this one guy and his house and a million people? Well, maybe this would be helpful. In that day and age, a man never carried water, ever. It was a job for a woman. So think of this picture. If there were a bunch of people on the street with umbrellas, and everyone had a black umbrella, but one person had a red umbrella, it would stand out among the crowd more than anything else. This is that kind of a picture. And so they're looking for this guy, and they're, they're going to celebrate this Passover meal, this Passover that, if you remember the story, the Exodus in the Old Testament, that the Israelites were enslaved. They were slaves in Egypt. And Moses calls them and says, listen, God's going to free us. No longer will we be slaves to these people. In fact, we're going to be set free, and we'll be so free that we can go where we want to go. But, but God wants us to eat of a particular meal. And they call it the Passover meal. And so they painted the doorposts and, and lamb's blood and and they ate this meal, and they got rid of all the yeast in their house. It was this idea that it would be made in haste because God's going to do a new thing. So every year they had this Passover celebration where they would celebrate that God gives freedom to his people. And so they would gather in different places, and people would come from all over to Jerusalem. And so Jesus gathers with his disciples in this upper room above someone's house. They sit around this table, and he takes bread, and he breaks it. And he shares it with them, and he said, this is, this is the new covenant. He takes his cup and he passes it around. This is the blood of the new covenant. This, is the, this, is, this represents my life and death, but ever since hope. In fact, we won't eat or drink of this again until the kingdom of God has come. In fact, the cool part of the story is it's not in this text, but just a little later in another text that we see that Jesus comes, after he comes back to life, he goes and eats with his disciples and he drinks with his disciples as a reminder to them that God's kingdom has come. And then he talks about being betrayed. He says that person's hand is on the table with me, and, and another gospel, it says Judas got up and left the table. It doesn't mention that here, but, but after this idea of betrayal, then we see this argument break out. Because I think we sometimes forget these disciples are like teenagers. I mean, they really are teenagers. And so what we see next is what happens among teenagers. Well, I'm going to be the greatest. No, I'm going to be the greatest. No, I'm going to be, I'm bigger than you. I mean, like, this is the kind of argument that it probably looks like to Jesus. And he's just so irritated with them. And he looks at him and he says, well, would you stop? You know who's going to be the greatest? I'll tell you who's going to be the greatest. Whoever serves the most. Whoever puts other people ahead of themselves, that's who's the greatest. Whoever makes themselves the least, that person is the greatest in my kingdom. It's like we live in a world that says if you have the most, if people serve you, that you're the most important. But I'm telling you, that's not how God is because that's not how I am. And then as if to further the idea that we can't ever seem to get what Jesus is trying to tell us, he says this. Uh, 
go sell your stuff, go buy a sword. It's an Eastern saying that basically says, be ready because life's going to get really hard. And his disciples, rather than recognizing he's using a saying that's contemporary in their culture, they say, oh, we've got swords. And it's like he's just so flabbergasted and annoyed. He goes, that's enough. That's enough. We just can never seem to get what he's trying to tell us. We, we hear what he's saying, but we don't understand what he's saying. And Peter, Peter's like, you know, Jesus, I'm never going to betray you. And he's like, Peter, you've got good intentions. You've got the right intentions. But even this night, you're going to have the wrong action. But it's okay, because I'll still forgive you. In fact, after you've done this, I want you to go back to your, to your brothers here, and I want you to lead them. Peter's like, not me, Lord. I'll go to to prison for you. I'll die for you. And Jesus says, Peter, later tonight, in fact, not too long later, that's what happens. Jesus is arrested by a personal friend coming to kiss him, betray him. Peter cuts off a man's ear. Jesus heals him because he says, that's not what we're about. And the soldiers mock him. And it's not the end of the story, but it's the end of the story for today. So like I said, I think there are three main characters for us to look at. There's Jesus, there's Judas, and there's Peter. Because every story has characters, and every, every character is a little bit complex, and so each of these characters is no different. But, but here's how this looks. Peter had the right intentions, right? But his actions were wrong. I mean, this is, this is our story over and over again. We have, we have the right intentions, but the wrong actions. We want to do the right thing, but we just can't seem to go the right way. We, we want to be good. We want to do the right thing. We want to not have sin in our life, but we keep going in the wrong direction over and over again. But Judas is the one that we really look at. We go, we're not even sure he had the right intention. We think he might have had the wrong intentions. We know his action was wrong. But Judas has to answer this question, well, what now? What do I do now? And Judas answers that question by taking the, the silver that he made and he buys a field and he hangs himself. I mean, each of us have to answer the question, what now? And Judas answered it that way. He knew who Jesus was. He knew Jesus had forgiven all kinds of people. He knew Jesus wanted to make the world right. He knew this, but he knew he had gone so far the other direction that his intentions had been so bad, that his actions had been so bad, that how could God ever forgive him? And he made a decision when he was asked the question, what now? He chose to take his own life. And there's Peter, and Peter, Peter had good intentions. I mean, Peter's always filled with good intentions. In fact, I think Peter gets a bad rap because he was fundamentally a loyal guy. Like, he wanted to be loyal to Jesus. He wanted to do the right thing. You notice that only two disciples went into the courtyard. It was he and John were the only two that even went with Jesus. The other one scattered when he got arrested. But he's in the courtyard, and this, this girl asked him this question, aren't you one of those guys? I mean, in a culture that didn't value women, he should have just said, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't. I don't, I, he could have dismissed her. Instead, he goes, oh no, not me. Another guy goes, aren't, aren't you one of his followers? No, not me. You're Galilean. You must be one of his followers. No, not me. And it's at this moment that Jesus looks at him, heartbroken, because see, sin, sin isn't like this idea that God's just angry with us. Sin is that we break the heart of Jesus. And Jesus looks out across the courtyard, because it would have been open, and he looks at at Peter, heartbroken. And Peter too asked to answer this question. What now? What now? Peter 
Peter takes off with kind of his tail between his legs, and he goes to his other disciples and says, I screwed up. And not too long in the story, we know that Jesus confronts him. He says, listen, Peter, do you love me? Well, yeah, you know I love Peter, do you love me? Well, yeah, you know I love you. Peter, do you love me? And it clicks in Peter's mind, oh, he's offering me forgiveness. So what now? Peter chose repentance. And then there's Jesus who has right intention. And we see him praying in the garden. I mean, he doesn't really want to die. 33 is a pretty good age, I think. I mean, I don't think it's that old. I, don't, I think it's not too old to die. I mean, I, I think I like 33. I don't know. But I mean, it, it's not, probably not the prime of your life, but not too far from it. I mean, in my head anyway. And so, so Jesus comes before me. He goes, well, I, Father, I, if I don't have to do this, I don't want to. And, and, and he says, but your will be done. Lord God, if this is what we need to redeem the world, this is what people need to, to see, to know that you love them, then I'm in. Because Jesus has right intention and right action. And it's not that he sets a model for us that's impossible for us to follow. It's, it's in fact, it's very possible for us to follow. That's why Jesus models it for us. But it is impossible to have the right intention and the right action without the presence of God. What now? It leads us to ask this question, what now? See, I, I think there are times in our lives when, um, when we're really, really hungry. So I, I have to be honest, yesterday I was um, scrolling quickly through Facebook and I saw someone was eating a Giordano's pizza in, in Holland and, and we used to eat at Giordano's in, in Chicago often and so I was just thinking, ooh, that sounds really, really good. Like, I mean, it's deep dish pizza, and there's extra cheese, and they put lots of toppings on it. And, and I mean, they, you have to wait 30 minutes no matter when you order it, because it's always a 30 minutes to cook it. And, and it's just so good. And you can't eat more than, like, two, maybe three pieces. If you do, you'll be sick. If you think I'm lying, try it. Call me afterward. But every time I'm like, craving this and I would have it, I, I would be afterward to go, oh, I don't want that again for a while. Right, because my appetite was for, for this. And may, have you noticed that when your appetites, when you get what you're really craving, you don't really want it that much anymore? Have you noticed that? This is what it's kind of like for us. We have appetites in life. All of us do. We all crave certain things. We crave them. We want them. But then sometimes we get what we crave. And we realize after the fact, it really wasn't worth it. Judas had an appetite. His appetite was for violence, hoping for the overthrow of Rome. Didn't go well. Peter had an appetite for acceptance. I mean, that's why he says, oh no, I don't know him. Peter wanted to fit in. He wanted to leave, but he wanted to fit in, so it's really hard to do both sometimes. Jesus had appetites as well. But his were set totally different than the other guys. He wanted to serve, and he wanted to love. And that's what drove him. So we're left with this question, what are our appetites? What is it that drives us? Are our appetites things that, that build up others and build up ourselves, or do they destroy us? And after we, we fill the hunger that we need, we go, well, what now? Because I don't want any more right now. I mean, I might later, but I don't now. See, I think for many of us, when we've said, what now, 
we say it out of response to things we've done that have probably been sinful or broken. Most we've gone in the wrong direction, and our response to that then is, what now? Are we going to keep having wrong intention? Are we going to have the right intention to keep doing the wrong thing? I mean, what, what is it going to do? Are we going to begin to live into a pattern of life where we have the right intention followed by the right action? See, we all have to answer this question, what now? It's why I love this story where, and I've read it to you before, and so if you've heard it again, it won't kill you. It's really good every time, and I think it's good. It's by a woman named Dawn, who's an ER doctor, or ER nurse, and she, she's in the ER, and, and she leaves church, and she leaves the church, and they say, well, you know, let's love people, let's serve people, and then she has to put into practice what she says she believes. So here's her story. In my years in the ER, I saw Jesus daily doing his kingdom work in and through a group of his followers. It was a true expression of the church. One day stands out beyond all the others and left me radically changed forever. It was the day I saw Jesus face to face. Give us hearts as servants was the song they were singing as I left the church service, heading off for my second 12-hour shift in a row. Weekends in the ER can be absolutely brutal. I was physically and emotionally spent as I walked up to the employee entrance. The sound of ambulances and an approaching medical helicopter were telling signs that I would be literally hitting the ground running. Dawn, can you lock down room 15, yelled out my charge nurse as I crawled up to the nurse's station. When someone asked for a lockdown, it was usually a psychiatric or combative case. Two security guards stood outside the room, biceps flexing like bouncers, anticipating a drunken brawl. My eyes rolled as I walked past them into the room to set up. The masked medics arrived with Bob, strapped and restrained to their cart. The hallway cleared with heads turned away in disgust at the smell surrounding them. They entered the room, and I could see Bob with his feet hung over the edge of the cart, covered with plastic bags tightly wrapped around the ankles. The ER doctor quickly examined Bob, always settled him in. The medics rattled off their findings in the background with Bob, mumbling in harmony right along with them. The smell was overpowering as they uncovered his swollen, mold-encrusted feet. After tucking him in and taking his vital signs, I left the room to tend to my other ten patients in waiting. Returning to the nurse's station, I overheard the other nurses and techs arguing over who would take Bob as their patient. In addition to the usual lab work and tests, the doctor had ordered a shower complete with betadine foot scrub, antibiotic ointment, and non-adherent wraps. The charge nurse looked in my direction. Don, will you please take Bob? Please? You don't have to do the foot scrub, just give him the sponge in the shower. I agreed and made my way to gather the supplies and waited for the security guard to open up the hazmat shower. As I waited with Bob, the numbness of my business was interrupted by an overwhelming sadness. I watched Bob, restless and mumbling incoherently to himself through his scruff of a beard and stash. His eyes were hidden behind his ratted, curly, shoulder-length mane. This poor shell of a man had no one to love him. I wondered about his past and what had happened to bring him to this hopelessly empty place. No one in the ER that day really looked at him, and no one wanted to touch him. They wanted to ignore him and his broken life. But as much as I tried, I couldn't. I was drawn to him. The smirking security guards helped me walk him to the shower. As we entered the shower room, I set out the shampoo, soaps, and towels like it was a five-star hotel. I felt in my heart that for at least ten minutes, this forgotten man would be treated as a king. I thought for those ten minutes, he would see the love of Jesus. I set down the foot sponge and decided that I would do the betadine foot scrub by myself as soon as his shower was finished. I called the stockroom for two large basins and a chair. 
When Bob was finished in the shower, I pulled back the curtain and walked into the throne of warm blankets and the two basins set on the floor. As I knelt at his feet, my heart broke and stomach turned as I gently picked up his swollen, rotted feet. Most of his nails were black and curled over the top of his toes. The skin was rough, broken, and oozing pus. Tears streamed down my face while my gloved hands tenderly sponged the brown soap over his wounded feet. The room was quiet as the once mocking security guards started to help by handing me towels. As I patted the last foot dry, I looked up, and for the first time, Bob's eyes looked into mine. For that moment, he was alert, aware, and weeping as he quietly said, Thank you. In that moment, I was the one seeing Jesus. He was there all along, right where he said he would be. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you gave me clothing. I was sick, and you took care of me. I was in prison, and you visited me. Lord, when did we see you hungry, and gave you food, or thirsty, and gave you something to drink? And when was it that we saw you a stranger, and welcomed you, or naked, and gave you clothing? And when was it that we saw you sick, or in prison, and visited you? And the king will answer them, Truly I tell you, just as you did it to one of the least of these who are members of my family, you did it to me. See, I think, I think we sometimes miss in this story that Jesus calls us to a life of service and a life of love. And he calls us to recognize in those moments when we had right intention, but our actions were wrong. And we say, what now? He says, will you just accept my forgiveness? We just believe that my Father loves you and that I love you. He even says to us in those moments when we had wrong intention and wrong action, we stop. We believe that I love you. We believe that I forgive you. And we have to answer the question, what now? We can keep going back and living the same ways over and over again, but God comes to us and says, how about it's time you live differently? How about, how about you begin living and you have appetites for something more? Appetites for something that gives life, not that destroys life. Appetite for something that, that when you have to ask or answer the question, what now? You know, the answer is, I, I want to love people more. I want to serve more. I, I want to be so radically defined by that, that, that if I happen to be an ER nurse, that I would go, you know, how can I be Jesus today to this person? And we're reminded of that in simple ways. In fact, Jesus gathered with his disciples and ate the Passover meal, which they would have done every year. Simple meal. And we partake of it here once a month in some ways. It's this meal we gather around a table and we, we eat bread. We have some juice. Simple. Ordinary. We call them sacraments. What they are, they're things that are simple and ordinary. But they mean something so much greater. Well, the sacraments we, we participate in here are our communion, the Lord's Supper, the Eucharist, whatever you want to call it this morning, and baptism. And we participate in both of those things as a reminder to us that Jesus comes to us and says, listen, I know you may have had right intentions, or you may have had wrong intentions, and you may have had the wrong action, but I always had right intention and right action. My forgiveness and my love and my grace for you put you in a position where you don't have to go back anymore. And when you answer the question, what now? 
you can move forward in such a way that you are receivers and givers of the grace of God. So this morning, as we take these elements, may they be for you and for me. May they be the grace that we need in our lives that call us to love more deeply, more truly, without condition. And may we then recognize that we're called to serve in every aspect of our life. Because when the disciples were arguing about who was the greatest, Jesus goes, well, whoever serves more. Because in God's kingdom, everything is turned upside down and value is seen not by what you get, by what you give. This morning, we receive from God what he gives to us, which is his grace. So as the praise team comes this morning and leads us, we're going to sing the song, Holy Spirit. As I pray, some people are going to come and, and help us give out these elements. And, and when we take communion, we'll take it out these two middle outside aisles. And you'll just come forward and you'll take a piece of bread and you'll dip it in the cup. And, and the person holding the bread will say the body of Christ when you take the bread from them. And then when you dip it in the cup, the person holding the cup will say the blood of Christ for you. And you'll eat it right there. And it's a reminder for us that this simple meal is the grace of God to us that Jesus invites us to know. Father, we thank you for this time together this morning for the way you are near to us, for the way you help us, for the way you call us to be your people. So Father, this morning as we prepare to take these elements, may we recognize they are grace for us. They are to us this day the hope that says we are yours. And so Father, today we thank you for these moments in which we can participate in this meal together. So may you bless Bless our lives as we say to you, whether we've had wrong action or right action, we've had good intention or bad intention, today, we not only want to have good intentions, but we want to have good actions in our lives. They're centered in following Jesus. I pray this all in your son Jesus' name.